Some other things that probably would be important to know about me, uh, just, you know, full disclosure, um, as we start. Um, one would be that um, um, I was born and raised in Ohio. Um, and, uh, <laughs> um, but I was, I was too tense. I had to go to bed last night in the bottom of the fifth entire uh, score. Um, so I was, uh, I, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the fourth of four sons. Uh, my parents were 45 when I was born in 1962, which was a rare thing, right? If you're 45 in 1962 and pregnant with a baby. Um, and I, I guess it was an accident, that's what they tell me. Uh, my brothers were 18, 16, and 11 when I was born. Right? So I have one brother, my oldest brother, who's old enough to be my dad. Um, my, uh, so I, I grew up, you know, in many respects, like an only kid, right? Um, uh, went to high school, college, where I met my wife of 30 years, as of September, 30 years, and uh, thanks be to God. I mean, like, that she has lived with me. Is that, is that right? <laughs> mm, 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 mm. Um, we have a, uh, a, a daughter who's 26 and a son who's 23. Um, I lost my father when I was 17. Uh, to cardiovascular disease. My mother at age, she was at age 86, about 12 years ago, but then also following her death about six months later, I lost number two brother to cancer, and then I lost another brother to cancer two years ago. Um, so I don't like cancer. Um, and uh, a lot of, uh, so, so that's, that's part of my story. Um, another part of my story is that I'm a professional sinner. Tell people I'm not just. Uh, so I think that uh, if you're um, if you're if you've done something for a really long time and you're really good at it, you should be called a professional. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so that's why that's what I am. Um, and so I just like go big or go home. So I like I go big <laughs> with sin. Um, uh, so those those are some things uh, to know. Um, and, and there will be more things that I will that I will talk about as we as we go forward. Um, I uh, so I'm I'm just really really grateful to be here because I, I tell folks I'm I'm always ever grateful to be uh, you, know, you know like like following Jesus is really hard to do. It just is. If you if you're serious about it, there's that whole thing of pick up your cross. He didn't say pick up your cooler of Coors Light, right? To pick up your cross, like it's hard to do. Um, and so it's never a bad thing for me to be in a room full of people who find it to be hard to do so that I'm not by myself with this, right? Right on? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so um, with that in mind, um, I, I want to say that in the course of our, of our conversation, the three conversations we're going to have uh, in, in this morning, tonight, and then tomorrow, um, I, I want to invite us, first of all, to consider uh, that this is not about like, like just learning things from me. This is about asking the question, what is God doing in this space right here and now? Being curious about that, being open about that, always being open to what is God doing? He's already been doing really, really crazy cool stuff in worship, right? Really good stuff. If we're paying attention, if we are open to this. Along the way, we might even talk about some things that the brain does. It's kind of hard for me not to do that along the way. Um, but that's the question. What is God doing in the time that we have together? What is his intention? And here's something else that we like to say in, in the business. Um, until and or unless we experience embodied change, change has not happened. 
until and or unless we experience embodied change. So for instance, it's not enough to learn something logically, linear. It's not enough just to learn good theology if it does not lead literally to embodied change. Whether by embodied, we mean I can measure this in terms of what's going on in my physicality, whether that's what I feel, what I sense, or what I'm going to do differently at the end of the day. And so this is another question that we're asking. In what way is God transforming us, not just in terms of like some abstract thing that we learn before the end of the weekend, but in the course of this weekend, in the course of our conversations, in the course of your retreating, in the course of the worship, in the course of the meals, the conversations, the rest, the naps, <coughs> the naps, <laughs> bless you, the naps, right? In the course of all this, how is God enacting a body change? And we're going to see like this is part of the story that he's really serious about. Like God is serious about telling our story, but story is never something that is disembodied from who we are. And we never, and this is the other thing, this is part like, as far as, it's kind of a cool thing about the brain, like our brains never change without other people's brains changing along with them, right? We're never separate. We're going to see why that kind of works from a, like, anthropology standpoint here in just a bit. So we would all say, so the, the, the course of, of my time for us, we're, we're going to talk about stories. And we're going to, so this is the first question about that. In what story do you believe you're living? In what story do you believe you're living? Because we, we all, whether we know it or not, whether we're paying attention to it or not, we're all living in some story. We wake up in the morning and we think certain things and we say, I'm late. I'm living in a story in which I'm late. Right? This is my story of the day. Like my story of the week. Right? I'm late. Right? Or I didn't get much sleep last night because I have children. I'm living in that story. Right? Or you've come in, you've sat down, and you're like, I should have gone to the bathroom. <laughs> You're living in that story. You're thinking, like, well, what's that got to do with a story? Like, it, like your, your bladder will tell you it has a lot to do, right? Because if you have to go to the bathroom, you're not going to be listening to much of what I had to say, right? So, like, these stories take place at lots of different levels, right? We have big stories. We would say, well, we believe that we're in the story of the gospel. We believe that we're in the story in which we were created by a god of the universe. We believe all that. But what difference does that make in my everyday, moment-to-moment, -moment, breathing in and out, how I play the drums, how I teach my students? How, like, what difference does that make story? And then there are these medium-sized stories. By medium-sized, we mean these are kind of like boots-on-the-ground, larger-than-me story, but not just about the big story. Stories like, I'm still mourning my father's loss at age 17. Stories like, I'm still trying to deal with the sexual abuse in the first 10 years of my life. I'm still trying to deal with the fact that I've been unemployed for a year. Like, that's a story that is, like, real, tangible, and is impacting us all day, every day. And we tell our own story in light of these things. We're doing it all the time, whether we know it or not. And there are these, like, very small stories, right? So I'm hungry. Or I'm really irritable because I've had too much to do and too little time to do it. Right? These moment-to-moment these -moment things that are shaping our story every moment of every day. These large, medium, and small stories are all equally important, and they're all shaping one another. But the question is, in what story do I believe I'm living? Now, I would say, most of the time, I'd like to believe that I'm living in the middle of the gospel. But if you were to have found me on the day when my daughter was three and she comes downstairs, and in my attempt to keep my house quiet and let my wife sleep, this is 20-some years ago, thanks be to God, my daughter does not remember this incident, I lose my temper because she comes down with one of those play school, those old play school, like, cassette recorders, 
You know, you know those things that they like they're they're like technology the devil, right? Because they give them to children, and children like like wake people up at seven o'clock in the morning with these things, right? And I, in my attempt to keep the house quiet, am in the kitchen yelling at my daughter, right? Me, the psychiatrist. Like, I write books about these things. And I'm there, I'm yelling at my, my daughter. In that moment, I don't really believe I'm living in the gospel story. You, feel, you know what I mean, right? There are these moments where it's because it's really hard to follow Jesus. It's hard to remember what it means for us to be in the middle of that story, which is why retreats like this are so, so important. Because it's where we come here and we are reminded by being with others who are working hard at this, that this is the story that we're in. And we come with all of our crap and we come with all of our joy and with all of our hope and with all of our worry and we come to a God that we believe can take all of it and change us in the process. Stories have some common elements. One of those elements is um, important for you to know. Each one of us in the room, our stories began long before we were born. They did, right? Because your parents got pregnant with you, and they started talking about you. <coughs> they started telling stories about you. When my mother was pregnant with me, everybody was anxious, right? Because if you're 45 in 1962, people are worried, right? Because that was, didn't happen very commonly. People get worried about all kinds of problems that might emerge, right? For, in my case, they're still worried, right? They're still, <laughs> they're still worried, right? So this is, this is what happens, right? People are excited about you, or people, you might be someone who they didn't want, right? And parents are already telling stories about you, whether you know it or not. And even right now, our imaginations are wondering, what was my parent thinking? What were they thinking? Oh, I go. And some of us, like, we know what they were thinking. We know that there was great joy. We know that there was great worry. We know that there was lots of stuff. It could be a range of different things. So one thing it's important to know that your story begins long before you're born. Number two, your story is first told by somebody else. Your story is first told by somebody else. When you're born, people start to decide things. They first tell your story by giving you a name. Like you didn't decide your name. Somebody else told you what your story was going to be. Right? I mean, like, where did Kurt come from? Like, Kurt, I don't know, Kurt, I don't know. I don't know, but somebody decided to call me Kurt and I named for somebody else. I don't even know the person I was named for. Like, I think he was dead by the time I arrived. Okay, so people are telling you things. And then they do all kinds of other things, too, to tell your story. Like, they put you in clothes that you would never wear as an adult. <laughs> Heck, if you had the choice, you wouldn't wear them as a newborn, right? You would, like, onesies. Whoever knew about onesies, right? Like, put these, like, I can't get out of this thing, right? 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 So they, we tell stories in all kinds of ways, not just what we say with our words. Here's another feature about stories. Much of storytelling is done without language. If it's true that 60 to 90% of all human communication is nonverbal in nature, what does that mean about how we are telling stories? Not just about ourselves and about other people. We tell stories with our bodies all the time, right? One interesting thing about um, uh, what we'll, we'll find out about, like, because we're going to talk in this first day, in this first conversation, we're going to talk a lot about joy. And we're going to talk about how what we do with our bodies actually shapes the degree to which we experience that emotional state, right? And so a lot of what we are doing about telling our story about whether or not it's a story of joy or not has a lot to do with what we do with our bodies. Shocking. Another thing about stories is that they are always, always, always told collaboratively. You and I, we never tell our stories by ourselves, right? It began with somebody else telling our story, 
And at some point, I start to have language. And in my language, I start to join in. This is my nose, this is my eye. By the time they're like 18 months old, where's your eye? Right here, right? That they did this to you, right? They, they ran you through this like routine of like, where's your eye, where's your nose, where's your elbow? Like you could line up like 20, 18 month olds, they all know. Mm, mm. They can all do it. They have no idea that this is their eye. But they, they hear eye, they point to it, yeah, yeah, nice, yeah. Like, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> And hopefully by the time they're 18 years old, like they'll still remember that this is their eye. <laughs> they're told collaboratively. Here's a question for us. Who are the voices that are in your mind that are helping you tell your story? Everybody, we all. Even when we are telling stories about somebody else, right? I have an opinion about what you think about me, right? You're in my head, whether you're in the room or not. I want to suggest at the outset that our stories begin with a storyteller who's thrilled that you are here. Our stories are always told collaboratively. Another feature about our stories is that we always tell stories in order for them to be heard. I don't go into a room by myself and just start talking. Well, when I was like four, I used to do this, right? But, not, but like hopefully not too much now, right? We tell stories because we long for those stories to be heard by somebody else. We want to see our story light up in somebody else's eyes. And when we don't, and whether that story is a story of joy or a story of sorrow, we only know that our story is making sense when we see it show up in somebody else's eyes. Into whose eyes are you looking who is helping to tell you your story? That's what community is partially about. It's not all what it's about. But part of what we are here to do is to be the eyes into whom other people see so that we can help them tell their story and tell it truly. But many of us come, I, I come, right, in my professional center state. Um, I'm not looking in the eyes of those people. I'm looking in the eyes of somebody who's like shaming me for things. Like this is, you know, the, the memories that we have. All kinds of stuff. All uh, all kinds of other voices. All kinds of other faces that are in our head, that are in our memory, that are in our experience that tell us a very, very different story. And lastly, this. It's important to know that all stories have a beginning and a middle and an end. Our story had a beginning. And our story, we would suggest right now, we're somewhere in the middle of our story. We don't know how far into our story we are. I mean, heck, I could be dead by tomorrow. So I don't know if I'm close to the end or not. I know I'm somewhere in the middle pages, right? And we are by faith, we are by faith trusting that there is a particular end to the story of the gospel that is coming. And we even think that we've gotten a glimpse of it already, right? 2,000 years ago it shows up, right? But we don't know where we are. But we trust that we know where we're going. What's the beginning of our story? That's something that I'd like for us to have the rest of our time this in this time together to talk about. So um, when they asked for me to uh, give an idea about um, what the uh, I have to look at my phone to check my time. Oh, what the um, uh, what the scripture texts were, I said. Uh, 
story number one. You see, I think you see when you're like, story number one, what title is that? Story number one. And like, it's Genesis 1 and 2, right? Well, I don't know how you all like march through scripture when you're like exegeting and so forth and so on, but like, how are you going to cover Genesis 1 and 2 in like 10 minutes? Here's how we're going to do it. All right, we're just, here, here we go. So, first of all, um, are, are we familiar with Genesis 1 and 2, generally? Okay, for the most part. Now, I don't know when the last time it was that you read it. But I'm, I'm just going to invite us to consider some things. Because I want, us to go, I want us to go back, I want us to go back to this. Because when we think about our large story, it's helpful to begin at the beginning. And even though your life might have begun in 1980, or 19, in my case, 62, like, my life didn't really begin in 1962, right? My life began, like, in stories that my parents were telling, that came from stories that their parents told, and so forth and so on, back to the first story. You with me? Here's the question. Here's another question. I want to invite us to find our story in the beginning. I want us to first say that the gospel does not begin with, you are a sinner. The gospel begins with, and it was good. It's hard for me to wake up in the morning, my feet hit the floor, and think, God's saying first and foremost, it's good. Like, I'm thrilled that you're here. It's great that you're, like, your feet are on the ground. Let's go. I don't often pay that much attention to that. I want to invite us to consider that that is exactly what God is telling us every morning we wake up. So when we go back to the first story, back to Genesis, we want to know one, one thing we want to know. is like, what is God's intention? And I want to suggest to you that we read, when you read Genesis 1 and 2, one of his intentions is an intention to create a world of goodness and beauty and joy, of which human beings are the pinnacle. A world of goodness and beauty and joy. Yet he starts with this. And I'm going to read this not from, this, not from the NIV, but from the NRSV. Genesis 1, the second verse. First and first, second verse. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, here you go. The earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. Now, this is the cool part. While a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. The earth was a formless void, while the wind from God swept over the surface of the waters. Lots of questions we can be asking. Here's a question. Where in your life today do things feel like a formless void? What parts of them? What parts of this church congregation feel like a formless void? There's some part that we know, we sense, we've been avoiding it, or we've not been avoiding it. We've been waste deep in it. It feels like we can't get out of it. So, and we are waiting for the wind of God to sweep over. We all have it. We've all got some place that feels like a formless void. Our only problem would be if we're not confessing and identifying that immediately so that the wind can get access to it. Coming to places like retreats is a way that we do that. Does that make sense? Where does the formless void want to show up for us today? And then God starts doing things in Genesis 1. And the first thing that you notice in the first day, in the second day, in the third day, he starts separating things. Notice that? Day 1, he separates light from dark. Day two, he separates water above from water below. Day three, he separates the water from the land. He's separating things. He's moving things apart in order for them to come together again in order to make a complete whole. He's separating things. 
where do we long for God to come in and separate, to distinguish? How many of us feel like, you know, my, there are just parts of my life that just feel like too complicated. Like I can't make heads or tails about what's up, what's down, what's right, what's left. I want to suggest that in this weekend, all day, every day, the wind of God is looking to separate that, to clarify, in order for him to heal, regenerate, and unleash to create. Now, okay, a word about music. Was this just, okay, I'll just say this all week. Was this just not fabulous stuff? This fabulous stuff, right? It's fabulous stuff, okay? But here's the thing. Um, It's likely that, like, in order for this to come together as a whole unit, each of these instruments are going to have to be separated out. Each person's going to have to, like, practice their thing. Do their thing really, 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 really well in order for them to then come together to be with one another. Are you with me? We can't have the whole as some just homogenous thing unless each part is doing the disciplined, hard, rigorous work of practice, 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 practice. What does it mean for us to practice following Jesus in those places where it's really hard for us to do eight hours a day, right, if we're going to be good at things, in order for us to come back with those other parts of us that are really different, in order for us to be together? You know, like, you know... Heaven, man, like, the, here, one of the challenges about heaven is that there are going to be people there probably that I don't want to be there. Let's just be honest. Like, come on, you have to admit this, right? There are people, like, somebody has to say this, right? Right, there are people, like, because there are people that, like, I'm, like I, I, have, I have a couple of people right now with whom I have unfinished business in my life, right? And I'm kind of hoping that, like, you know, you kind of, they don't make it. <laughs> no, no, not really. Like, you would never want to, like, name them and say, like, George, I, I, like, what are you doing here? Right? <laughs> you don't really want to say that, but you are kind of hoping that if George does make it, you're thinking, like, heaven is a really big place. <laughs> and we're just, like, not ever going to run into each other, right? Until Jesus shows up and says, like, Kurt, hey, I just want to let you know, George is here. Like, no, like, he's here, here. And you have some work to do. And I'm going to help you do it right here because I both want you here in my, in my head. I want you here. There are those who are different. And I don't mean just different like, oh, you have blonde hair, I have brown hair. I mean like, no, like we have unfinished business. And in the new heaven and new earth, like that, like we just can't do that. Like if we're going to have unfinished business, like it's going to get taken care of. And so if we're not practicing that right now, when heaven gets here, it will crush us. He separates and brings things together in order to heal, regenerate, and unleash to create. And then you notice, it's not just that day one and it was good, day two it was good, day three the North Carolina Tar Heels and it was very good, like all these things, right? (laughs) These things, like it was good, it was good, it was good. Like it's not just, like we read this, it was good, and you're like, oh, it was good, and it was good. No, it's like, it was like, let's have a party, right? It was after day one, let's have a band come up, we're just gonna play all day. Right? You with me? Mm-hmm. Can you imagine? And this is just this is just him like making light. <laughs> just making like land. Dirt. This is a God who is this excited about can you imagine when he gets to you? I have a hard time practicing, remembering, paying attention that God has made me and then has a party. God has made you and then has a party just because you're here. 
this is a chapter. Genesis 1 is a chapter about joy. It was good, it was good, it was good. And then he gets to chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. And this is where things just get a little bit. If you notice, right, if you notice all the other creation moments in Genesis chapter 1, I guess, like, I'm already, like, behind. Do I have, how much time do I have? That's a real question. You have to tell me. You're good. That's the bottom line. You're good. <laughs> when do I need? I need to finish when? Tell me when I need to finish. Ten minutes. Oh, ten minutes? Yeah, ten minutes? Yeah, because we started a little early. All right, all right. Okay, good. Okay, ten minutes. Okay, so hang on. I'm going to do this. Have you ever had a speaker do this? Like, hey, how much time do I have? Asking the crowd. It's like a democracy. <laughs> you have 60 seconds. <laughs> okay. So you get you get to you get to uh, you know all all the day one day two day three and like it's good it's good it's good let there be light and there was light right let the waters divide and they were divided so forth and it was good and then he gets to twenty six and twenty seven he does this you would think that if the text was going to be consistent the text would have said something like and the Lord God said let there be mankind and there was mankind you know that you get that right but he doesn't do this he has a conversation. It's like he's going to think about it. Let us, he's like, hey, hey, I have an even better idea. Let us make mankind in our image. Let us make mankind in our image. And what does the text say? Let us make mankind in our image and let them do what? Let them do what? This is, this is great. Let us make mankind in our image in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures so God made, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Now, I gotta, I just have a couple of questions about this, too. I have to. The first thing is, uh, you know, with this notion that, 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 that he's reflecting before he creates, he's reflecting on this, is a reflection of what it's like for us to be people. So God's saying, like, let us make mankind in, like, and, and let them live like we live. And we're going to have them do it in just like to mimic the very thing that we're doing right now, which is we're reflecting on what it is that we're doing. I want to know, like, to live effectively in the world requires a great deal of hard work in the area of reflection. It requires a lot of reflection. Part of our challenge is most of our life is lived like automatons. Most of our life just automatic. I'm just doing things impulsively, right? All day, I like, I've all, and then, I mean, this is me, right? And like, and... And if, if, if the shrink is doing it, like, there's a problem, right? <laughs> okay? But God is saying, I want you to be reflective. Now, you can imagine if they're having the conversation. Now, I'm uh, just also, just, uh, just so you know, um, the whole notion of the Trinity is huge. Like, it's really big. It's big from a neurobi- neurobiological perspective. It's big from a developmental perspective. It's, let alone, theological perspective. It's really big. Because then God says, let us make mankind. Let us, like us, this whole, this holy, this community. Let us make men and women to live like we live, which means that there's no such thing as an individual human brain. You know that in biology? In order for your brain to get to this room, it required lots of other brains to get you here. 
When you're born, you have about 30% of your neurons online, ready to go, doing the thing that they need to do. All the rest of those neurons require interaction with other people's brains in order for them to begin to interact with one another. And if they don't, you won't. Let us, 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 us make mankind to live like we live. Now here's the other thing I'm thinking. Like, do, you, do you imagine, like, so this Father, this Son, this Holy Spirit, do you imagine Jesus being part of this conversation? And he's like, this is, hmm, is this a good idea? <laughs> right, I'm thinking, because like, he's like, hmm, I see where this is going. <laughs> and the whole Good Friday thing, hmm, that's, hmm. You know what I mean, right? Like, you wonder, did they, like, actually have a conversation? I, like, I, I, I maybe they did. And they made us anyway. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a thing. We would say, yes, God reflects. And he's like, there's going to be trouble. Let's do it anyway. Here's the problem for me. I often only ever see the way in which I am troubled. Trouble for me. Trouble for others. My shame gets me by the throat. And it doesn't even have to be because of some big, horrible, horrendous thing that happened to me. It gets me by the throat just because I'm just saying, like, well, I should have done this, I should have done that. All day, or like a dozens, hundreds of times, this is what I do. I pay a lot more attention to the fact that I believe that I'm in trouble for God. And that becomes the thing that drives what I do. Let me ask you this question. What would you do in your life? What risk would you take? What conversation would you have? What relationship would you build? What new business venture would you try if you knew that you couldn't be trouble? If it's not possible to be trouble. If joy is the overarching undercurrent throughout pulsating experience that God has when he is in your presence, what would we do differently? And then God makes us. And then there's this whole Westminster Confession thing, right? Like, y'all are reformed people, right? (laughs) You ever hear that word, reformed, when you come to this church? Okay, all right. And the Westminster Confession says what? That the chief end of man is to what? Glorify God God and enjoy him forever. Which, okay, I'm not trying to make a big deal about this, but it does seem to me that God would have then said, let us make mankind in our image so that they would enjoy us and love us forever. But he doesn't say that. Right? Now, it doesn't mean that, like, enjoying God and loving him forever is, not, is a bad idea. It's a great idea. Right? It's just that he, he doesn't say this here. God says, let us make mankind so that they can live like we live on the earth. Joyfully. And then he gets to day seven and he rests. We're going to come back to Sabbath throughout our time. Sabbath is a big deal. Gets to day seven, he rests. And then he gets into chapter two. And chapter 2 has a much more organic feel to it, right? Chapter 1 is very linear, right? Very linear. Day 1, day 2, day 3. Chapter 2, it's kind of like all over the place, really organic, like you're watching a movie coming from different, that's not linear, like, like what, what was that, uh, the movie where there was, uh, never mind. Okay. Um, yeah, not enough time. Um, so, but let's just say this, that in chapter 2, in chapter 2, verse 7, a really important thing is said. And the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the earth, and he breathed the breath of life into man's nostrils, and man became a living being. 
He formed the man out of mud. We are breath and we are dirt. And if you take either of those away, we are nothing. Which is important to know then that this. We think that what we think is the most important part of who we are. Now, no one like teaches you this in school directly. We grew up kind of tacitly like drinking this kind of Kool-Aid though, right? When we think about the mind, we think about what we think. How is it then that St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? For you've been bought with a price. Not some abstract part of your, like you, your embodied self. Your, if my body is the, he doesn't say your mind is the temple of the Holy Spirit, your brain is, he said your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. If I'm not paying attention to what my body is telling me, I miss things that God is trying to say to me. To what degree do we pay attention to this part of my embodied soulful self, right? Because we are breath and we are dirt. We are living beings because of how God has breathed into our dirt the breath of life. We're going to come back to that mud tonight because it's really it's an important piece for us. Mud. Breath. And then he gets to 18. He gets to 18, verse 18. And then God discovers something. Along the way that he's making stuff, he discovers that there is this man... And man's by himself. And he's like, I'm not done yet. This is not enough. This is not good enough. It's not good for man to be alone. I want to tell you, like, if you, if you, look, at the, if you look at the research in neurobiology, like, human beings' biggest terror across the board. I don't mean, I don't, I don't care if you're talking about, like, one person or another person. If you're talking entire cultures, if you're talking ISIS, if you're, it doesn't matter. Human beings' biggest terror is to be left. It is to be abandoned. It is to be left alone. It is not just, it is not about solitude. It is not about like, I'm here on a retreat to, with intention, be alone. It's about like, I want to be found. You know where I am and you are not coming to find me. What parts of us are very aware that they are alone? What parts of our stories have for far too long been cut off from the rest of our stories and from anyone else, especially anyone else who's in this community. It's not good. And God knows it. And so God sends in the cavalry. He brings a woman. Right? Right? I'm going to break for him a helper. Right? The same Hebrew word that is used in the Psalms, the Lord is my helper. Right? This is not like my sous chef. New, 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 new. No. This is like the Marine Corps, right? Like 3rd Armored Division kind of helper, right? That's what that word's about. Because we all know that, like, men need this kind of help. <laughs> like, it's that kind of help because aloneness is that kind of serious trouble. And then he gets to the end. He gets to the 25th verse, the second chapter, and then there's this phrase, and the man and the woman, he's made everything. And after Adam the poet, right? After Adam the jazz pianist, and the, the jazz musician, right? Got up and like wrote his poem about Eve, sang his song. It says, and the man and the woman were naked and unashamed. Which is odd, right? I mean, it's odd. Like, they're, I mean, like, we don't think it's odd now, because, like, of course, as everybody here was, like, naked, like, we'd all be like, it'd be weird. It'd be weird, right? <laughs> because, believe me, you don't want me being naked up here. <laughs> right? 
But I wonder to myself, why, why naked and unashamed? Right? Why not naked and unafraid? Why not naked and confident? Why not naked and happy? Right? Because if Eve's naked and I'm Adam, I'm happy. Right? right? There's, this, uh, there's, there's a sense in which, like, right, there is a sense in which, oh, that was funny, come on. <laughs> I mean, I know we're not in a church building, we, we can talk about these kinds of things. Right? Because there is, there is a certain, there is a certain anticipation of overwhelmingly powerful creativity on which they are on the brink that requires them to be naked, meaning vulnerable. And without shame being part of the conversation. Where are we today as part of this joyful story? How have our stories been truncated? How have our stories been bent such that we are going to be anything but vulnerable? Because shame is so much a part of the conversation in which we are living. Here's the thing. The way shame operates, it's so effective. Most of where it's working in our life, we have no idea. Because we have been so practicing coping with it from the time we were born. I want to end this part with this. I want, to, I, want to, I want to be reminded, I want us to be reminded that if it is true that our story, our individual stories, our corporate stories begin in the first two chapters of the book of the Bible, God could not be more joyfully excited that you are on the earth. The question is whether or not we are paying attention. And our next time together, we're going to talk a bit about what went wrong, what has it led to, and what are the beginning pieces of the story of what God is doing in response to what went wrong. Thanks be to God.